Well, Mr. Douglas, very good of you to join us. Oh, please tell me, is the, is the devil still pursuing you? <laughs> well, perhaps you could explain to me what you mean by the devil. You seem to be on terms with him. It's the Popcorn Digest with Gareth and Andy. Hello and welcome to Popcorn Digest, the podcast about the films you love and some you don't. I'm your host, Gareth Green, and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time furry fanboy, Andrew Raphael. You see, Mr. Douglas, I'd like to put a pair of women's titties onto a full-grown hyena. <laughs> How'd you like them apples? They were scrumptious. <laughs> and today we're answering the question... Just what would a Marlon Brando film look like if no one told him no? As we take a doomed trip to the island of Dr. Moreau. But does this troubled production leave us howling for more? Find out after the trailer. On the sixth day, God created man. On the seventh day, he rested. And on the eighth day, in the year 2010, in a remote laboratory, an exiled scientist created something impossible. Unmistakably human, undeniably animal on the island of Dr. Moreau. I'd like to present my children. Father? Oh my God. Marlon Brando is patient zero of the Ice Bucket Challenge. In John Frankenheimer's adaption of Richard Stanley's concepts for H.G. Wells' The Island of Dr. Moreau. A film so bad that if Val Kilmer was allowed to change just one single misfortune in his life, any misfortune at all, he would likely choose to have this film removed from his IMDb profile. <laughs> I vetted that with Ali, and she was like, it's too far, you can't say it. <laughs> David Thewlis stars as some guy who finds himself stranded on some island, which is inhabited by horribly deformed, repulsive and terrifying creatures. Like Marlon Brando. <laughs> Join us as we dissect what can only be described as the furriest movie we've seen since Cats. But I will say, if you've ever wanted to watch the smallest man in the world bathe the largest man in the world, then The Island of Dr. Moreau is the film for you. <laughs> <laughs> so, Andy, The Island of Dr. Moreau. I, I've got to ask straight up. There isn't much difference between the two cuts, but which version did you watch? Uh, I think I watched the director's cut because I think if you search for a, like a HD version or buy a HD version, that's the one you get. I think so. Um, yeah, yeah, but I mean, I think it's about three and a half minutes difference or something like that. So yeah, it's 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 marginal. It's yeah. like a, a a small bit of gore. Yeah. <laughs> and considering how um, the kind of heavy weight that that throws about the idea of a director's cut of the island of Dr. Moreau, yeah. it really fails on that promise. It fails on pretty much every promise that this film makes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, the cut that this film demands is a 
a what if alternate dimension cut. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's what it warrants. The best version of this film exists only in concept art. Yeah, it exists in Richard Stanley's mind. <laughs> if you can find it in there. No, nobody can. <laughs> He described himself as a man who was raised by a witch. Yes. And if you've seen... We've watched the documentary Lost Soul, The Doomed Journey of Richard Stanley's The Island of Dr. Moreau um, in preparation for this episode. Yeah, they're pretty much a double feature. Like, if you're if you are watching this film, you have to watch that documentary in tandem with it, either before or after. Yes. It doesn't really matter which way around, to be honest. I actually watched it documentary first, film afterwards. That's that's how I did it as well. Definitely as a pairing, because it explains everything you're about to see. <laughs> yes, it most certainly does. I will ask the, the, the usual question. Do you have any prior experience with The Island of Dr. Moreau before uh, recording for this episode? Yeah, I, well, it was with uh, with you, wasn't it? I think you picked it, it was. up. It was. I asked these questions. They're hypothetical. <laughs> yeah, but... Uh, this is one of the ones that you picked up quite a few years ago now. I think I picked it up for the podcast when we first started recording yeah, in 2016. Yeah, I think it's been on the list for an awful long time. Along with Congo. Yes. Which we still haven't done. But I think this is probably the more interesting of the two. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I think when we first watched it, we knew it was going to be bad, but it was just like one of those things where when you watch it for the first time, completely cold, it's like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. Because... Yeah, it's an in, it's a really interesting one because it, it kind of starts off in a quite bland way. Yes, yeah. And then slowly reveals itself to be batshit crazy. <laughs> so yeah. it breaks down. <laughs> it almost starts in a way in which I thought it, on my first watch, I was watching something that opens in media res. It does feel like we are midway through another story at this point. Yeah, yeah. I will say as well, like uh, just to reveal up front, I have read several H.G. Wells books, but I've not read The Island of Dr. Moreau. Mm-hmm. Um, I have, however, seen previous adaptions of the book, including The Island of Lost Souls. Yeah. And I had just assumed that that's how the book opens as well, with A Man Lost at Sea. But for a film, I think it makes it feel like we're kind of thrust into something that's already in, at play, and we've missed out on so much. Yeah, I feel like if this film had had a a bigger budget and maybe less issues you could have maybe started on the plane and then have a a spectacular plane crash and and stuff like that i mean if if this film ever gets made again that would be make a quite good opening exactly yeah open with a bang yeah rather than a drowning (laughs) yeah i just got to ask as well have you read the book either do you have any um experience with the book or the material I i did read the plot synopsis which is a little bit similar but i feel like novels up until a certain point were much looser structurally mm. um than say i think you know novels i think started get to get more taught in the in the 50s 60s you know when you had this whole paperback thing going on and then prior to that they're a little bit more fast and loose and you know some of the threads ne- don't quite join up or reading the synopsis it feels a bit like and then this happened and then this happened but there's no reason for it sort of thing so i mean i'm not i'm not going to mention who because i don't think i'm going to attribute this quote to the right person but i do remember reading a quote from an author uh when speaking about like the history of the written word and when it comes to novels and that kind of thing yeah. is that um prior to a certain point stories and books were about characters and yeah. after a certain point it became about plot and structure mm-hmm. and story driven and i certainly think that you can see that you yeah. look at a lot of like Charles Dickens, they're all about characters. Yeah. 
they are the driving force of the story. Whereas now, with the birth of the you know airplane paperback, as you say, the holiday blockbuster read. Yeah, it seems like from a certain point, books used to be much looser around the plot of uh, of a story, but then focus more in on on the characters and the atmosphere and the description of things because that that's always a, a tell usually of a of an older book when it has a, a ton of description in it yeah and then books slowly get tauter i think from like the sort of post-war time i'd say when you know if you read a say it's you know like an ian Fleming book or anything or, or something like that yeah, or like a patricia highsmith book as well yeah i mean like, they they are very character based but they're a lot brisker whereas yeah the plot of uh of, of hd wells is the island of dr moreau it, it feels very rich with uh, odd characters and and yeah. rich thematic material, and I imagine it's quite atmospheric as well. And and it has that kind of old school trope of being narrated by the man who uh, you know it's very like yeah of of its time in terms of how you would frame a story in terms of being narrated by the uh, the hero of the story sort of thing yeah uh, in, in like a diary sort of format which obviously we have like dracula yeah and yeah. F- frankenstein has elements of that and yeah. even like lovecraft like a little bit later buried yeah. lovecraft it's like you'll never believe the story but i'm about to tell you <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly as i write this now i can hear the noises that they made in the recesses of my mind Yes. You know? <laughs> so I guess before we get into what we think about this film, it's best that we do what we always do, and that is go into yeah. some context. And that means how the film was made, when the film was made. Um, what is the history surrounding this particular film that informs what it became? There is a lot of history. <laughs> There's yeah. a lot that can be yeah. delved into with regards to the island of Dr. Moreau. We've already spoke of that documentary, Lost Soul. Yeah. That is certainly the best place to start when it comes to looking at the history of this film. And as you mentioned, it's almost, we mentioned this on a previous episode, The Exorcist one, where both cuts of the film seem to make an entertaining whole because of what they represent rather than what they are. Yeah. Yeah, And this has very much that same quality as well, watching that documentary. Mm-hmm. There are things that I heard about this film before that documentary was made that I never thought, like, that can't be true. Like, you know, <laughs> that didn't happen, but it's it's a nice urban legend. And then to find out that that shit did happen, <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but really, the story does begin with Richard Stanley yeah. and his vision and his brief flirtation with being a sought-after hollywood commodity for a very short like a nat's dick width (laughs) of a period like a window yeah it was just the first half of the 90s i don't think his story in that regard is unusual but what is unusual is richard stanley Uh, yes (laughs) so um he can be described as being a bit of a character. And I guess one thing to preface this discussion with, as as we always have to, there are some things that have happened in recent years with regards to Richard Stanley, domestic abuse allegations and that yeah. sort of thing. We won't be going into that on this podcast. It's not something we normally do previously. We're just talking about the films. But for all intents and purposes, they sound pretty bad. 
Mm. And it's rightfully put an end to his kind of resurgence. There's once more very brief resurgence. Mm. But yeah, so that's the end of that. But I do want to talk about like his vision and his standing and what he represented to Hollywood at that time as well. Yeah, yeah. It's just a shame I've never seen hardware. I've seen loads about it. I've seen video essays about it. I still haven't gotten around to watching it. Yeah, I was planning on actually watching it this week. And because uh, of certain family things going on, I never got around to it. So... I even downloaded Dust Devil as well and um, didn't get around to seeing that either. So, uh, I mean, the only thing I've actually ever seen from him is not a, a film as such. And it's actually that my it was my introduction to Richard Stanley. In between Dust Devil and uh, starting to make Dr. Murray, he made a long-form music video, like a 50-odd minute film for Marillion. But yeah, it's quite an impressionistic piece, and uh, I haven't seen it for an awful long time now. But yeah, that that was my that's the only thing I've seen that's been made by Richard Stanley. Oh, I did see the the color out of space, um, but I've not seen anything prior to Doctor Moreau. I did see yeah. the Island of Doctor Moreau when I was on holiday as a kid at Pontins Prestaton. <laughs> they did a showing of the Island of Doctor Moreau and Apollo thirteen back to back for the kids. Wow. <laughs> yeah for the kids <laughs> for the kids wow hey go, go around kids do you want to watch the island of dr moreau wow there's this weird tiny creature that has a penis hanging out of its butthole <laughs> i'm sure you <laughs> i'm sure you're gonna fucking love that <laughs> um, so yeah that's that's where i watched this film and I just remember it being like a bit of a fever dream. And if you've ever been to Pontins Prestatins, like that is an experience. Yeah, I mean... Watching Dr. Moreau at Pontins Prestatin. It's kind of like a metaphor for Pontins Prestatin in a way. <laughs> if you just change Dr. Yeah. Moreau with Captain Croc, wow. <laughs> and you're surrounded by people that can only be described as being man-beast things. The beast people. <laughs> the beast people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. All worshipping their deity, Captain Croc. We all have to stand around at the end of the day and do our ritual of singing, Crocodile, Crocodile. <laughs> oh yeah, so that was my experience of this film. But yeah, so going back to how this film came to be, so Hardware was something of a success for a Richard Stanley. Yeah. It was kind of like a film made off his own back, and it was a box office hit, they do describe it as. And then he went on to make Dust Devil, which was for Miramax, and that was a massive failure, and the people at Miramax, the Weinsteins, hated him. Just hated working with him. He is a character, after all. Yeah. And it left Stanley in 40 grand worth of debt uh, making that film. I am surprised that from the back of his experience on Dust Devil, he managed to get any traction whatsoever with the island of Dr. Moreau. Yeah. But I think a lot of it has to do with his vision for the film, obviously. Yeah. But the concept art from Graham Humphreys as well. Yeah. I have a book here full of Graham Humphrey's artwork for various films. Yeah. He's a very striking artist. And the artwork that he put together for that version that they intended to make together is very striking. The film only flirts with being that profoundly imaginative. Yeah, going back to like the genesis of this, this is a very personal project for Richard Stanley because it's a book that goes all the way back to his childhood. In a way, it goes back to his ancestry. Yes, it does, yeah. So, yeah, Joseph Conrad was a, a writing friend. Yeah. And Joseph Conrad obviously wrote Heart of Darkness. And Heart of Darkness 
was criticised by H.G. Wells as being a rip-off of the island of Dr. Moreau, and he accused them of using Colonel Kurtz as a his version of Dr. Moreau. So Joseph Conrad did say that it wasn't Dr. Moreau that inspired it, it was Sir Morton Stanley, uh, the English adventurer, uh, that inspired Colonel Kurtz. Sir Morton Stanley is actually Richard Stanley's great-grandfather. Yeah. And so it's weird that his great-grandfather inspired Colonel Kurtz, and then in his movie they went on to cast Marlon Brando, famous for playing Colonel Kurtz, in the role of Dr. Moreau as well. It's just one of those weird coincidences. And the thing that makes it, yeah, the thing that makes it weirder that that, the Brando thing wasn't intended. Another actor entirely was considered for Moreau. Originally wanted um, Jürgen Prochnow to play Moreau in a sort of more alternative hippie way in contrast to how he is in in the book. And in contrast to how Prochnow is in Judge Dredd. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But it was... Edward Pressman, the producer who was pitched all this, he was very receptive to the material and he shopped it about and ended up landing New Line Cinema. Yeah. At that time, along with Robert Shea, who was like the, the sort of founder of New Line and the, you yeah. know, the house that Freddie built and all that kind of stuff. There was another guy there at that time called... Mike DeLuca, who was trying to make New Line into more of a legitimate studio by commissioning and bankrolling films that sat outside of that that were a bit more prestigious than the the horror schlocky fare that they'd been previously doing. Yeah. Which seemed to uh, clash an awful lot with uh, what Robert Shea (laughs) was <laughs> wanted to do it did, yes. he's not talked about very highly in that documentary i feel like this particular project as well would have suited being made in the 80s as opposed to the mid 90s because yeah. one it would have forced the filmmakers to not lean so heavily and when they do that is on cgi elements at the times that they do because they clearly don't have the resources for that and boy does that fucking show (laughs) but also i feel like there's space for the kind of creativity that they wanted to bring to this now I, i i perhaps have a controversial statement on this and that is that i don't know if richard stanley's version of the film would have been good i'm not too sure it, it would have been, but I think it would have been more interesting. <laughs> it would have certainly been more creative, and it certainly would have had more striking imagery. Yeah. But I don't know if it would have been good, because he's a character, sure, yeah, he's a character, and he's clearly got a vision, but he's a bit of an oddball, and a weirdo, and a bit of a creep. Yeah. It's like, and to a lesser extent, when I look at Jodorowsky's Dune, yeah. and I think that would have been amazing, don't know if it would have been good in any way, but it would have been amazing, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. And that's how we feel with this one. Not too sure what it would have been, but certainly looking at the um, the concept art that they made, like, I love the element of there's this piece that Gray and Humphreys did of Dr. Moreau in a very kind of messiah-type figure. That's, that's yeah. how he's portrayed, uh, with a halo, and he's just performed some sort of caesarean birth. There's blood everywhere. He's surrounded by doctors and surgeons who are beast people, dog men, they call them. 
and one of them just out of sight of Dr. Moreau is licking the blood off the instruments that they've used. That kind of sums up exactly what I wanted from <laughs> from this kind of film, but it doesn't it, it doesn't ever get to that. No, no. It's interesting as well. Like when you watch the documentary, if you come in, in cold, not knowing the kind of person that Richard Stanley is, for a certain portion of the documentary you just go, ah, rookie film director. Yeah. Makes two sort of independent semi-independent films he's doing his big budget film uh there's some, there's some complications to that cool that's that's the story i've heard you know quite a few times and then when it gets to the point where it's like and so i resorted to witchcraft and it's like hey <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like can, can you rewind that and he says it completely seriously like and so at the time of my meeting with brando i organized a blood ritual to take place uh, and i was like uh yeah okay <laughs> yeah <laughs> you do you because <laughs> he's got such a like a you know very i don't know is he south african but for some odd reason he sounds more like new zealand yeah. oh it, i I thought he was like australian yeah so yeah he is, but he's south, south african. african but he has a very like flat monotone deadpan yeah voice and so when he's saying all these things in a very serious tone it's like hang on Roll that back. Wait, you, you're doing blood rituals with a... I've got to say this about directing, really. You don't find many professions where you have such wildly different people. Like, you wouldn't put Ridley Scott and Richard Stanley together. In any other profession, like, oh, what are you? Uh, you know, I'm an administrator for a bank. Yeah. Uh, and, and what do you do in your spare time? Oh, I'm, I dabble in a bit of witchcraft. Yeah. Somebody else is like, oh, what do you do? And it's like, oh, well... um. You know, I like to dress up and go out as a fox. Yeah, yeah. You don't really get that in other professions, but in, in directing, you get it as wild as, oh, yeah, I'm Ridley Scott and I'm Richard Stanley. One of them is a very professional filmmaker. The other one literally does blood rituals to make sure that his, he ends up on the film. <laughs> yeah. What a, what a crazy world. <laughs> what a crazy fucking world. Yeah, uh, they they probably happily drink wine together. I imagine. But, oh yeah, uh, I imagine so, so. Yeah, yeah. To be honest, you'd only have to go as far as saying wine, and Ridley Scott would say, "I'm in." Where, yeah. where are we going? <laughs> I'll bring the wine. <laughs> That's how we do so many films. It's like uh, we've got wine, Ridley. Okay. Yeah, he hasn't been sober for two decades. <laughs> yeah, wine and cigars. I'm in. <laughs> But yeah, so Richard Stanley did have quite a hard time on this film as well with regards to things like actors being involved. When Marlon Brando was touted as being Dr. Moreau when they first went to him with this, suddenly it became, for a very short time, a Roman Polanski production. Yeah. They really like abusers for the role as the director, don't they? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, it's interesting in, in the documentary as well, because like Bob Shea feels like sometimes the only sensible person in the room. Yes. Kind yeah. of thing. It's like, don't, don't hire Brando. <laughs> well, we've worked with him before. We know what happens. <laughs> so don't hire him. I mean, when this film came out, I was 10 years old. And I yeah. knew that Brando had a reputation for being hard to work with. I yeah. was 10. It's one of those films where... The film falls apart because you've got one crazy too many. If you've got yeah. one crazy, two crazies, but not three crazies, and that's the thing that tips it up because even if they'd had Brando in the film, at this point in casting, the film would have been anchored by... Uh, I mean, I don't know whether this would have been any better, but you had Bruce Willis 
as the um, at this point still called Prendick character, the the leading man character, and then you had James Woods as the Montgomery character. That seemed to be a little bit more balanced than what they eventually ended up with. The fact that it's James Woods and Bruce Willis, I'm not sure whether that would have been a great mix uh, either, but it probably would have been a little bit better than what we ended up with. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm like picturing Bruce Willis in full like die-hard mode on the island of Dr. Moreau. I thought I'd come out and have a holiday, go to the beach, <laughs> have a cocktail, catch some sun, they said. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they could have had they could have opened the plane scene. They had the same guy that told them to do the foot uh, exercises on the plane, and then the plane crashes. <laughs> yeah, they could have just made this John McClane. Like all Die Hard films are retrofitted, and it'd be Doctor Moreau is the thing this time. <laughs> Die Hard on an island. <laughs> Die Hard Three: The Island of Doctor Moreau. I want to see that now. That'd be great. I, yeah, this sounds fantastic. <laughs> Yeah, that that is a weird one as well. James Woods as Montgomery. I have issues with Val Kilmer playing a character called Montgomery. He doesn't look like he would ever be a Montgomery. I mean, that that whole thing is just it was more out of necessity, wasn't it? Because yeah, they wanted him as the Prendick character because Val Kilmer is your in-demand leading man at the time. This film also seemed to be derailed by actors having marital problems. So <laughs> you first get Bruce Willis dropping out because he's divorcing Demi Moore. And then Demi you Moore, have Demi Moore at a Morrison store. <laughs> and then, yeah, you get Val Kilmer replacing him, but then he has problems with his marriage to is it Joanne Wally. Yeah, and he decides that he wants to reduce his time on the film, so they switch his parts just because if he leaves, the whole film gets shut down. Val Kilmer has got a very divorced dad energy in this film. <laughs> Yeah. He really does. <laughs> it bleeds through to his character that you can tell he was a bit of a dick. You know, like really quite hard to work with. Because of all these circumstances, we end up with the cast that we have. Now, at this point, the leading man gets switched to an actor called Rob Morrow, who I've not actually seen anything of. But at this point, the film is greenlit and they start building sets and doing makeup tests and all that kind of stuff and the shooting out in australia in a place called cape tribulation in queensland which was a very it looks very remote anyway yeah it was like a an hour's drive to from where they were staying which was already in a remote location which sounds crazy yeah and um you've got stan winston doing all the creature effects and from what I've read of the Winston Effect book when it talks about Dr. Moreau, it was one of those films where they, because it was such a remote film in Australia, mm. they used a very small team of the younger artists working out of a very small set of trailers. Mm. <laughs> like They had a very small setup, which was fine because in Stanley's version of the film, I think it was only meant to be about 20, 30 beast people yeah. in the film. And it wasn't until later when in the Frankenheimer version of the film when they wanted many more beast people that it became very challenging because they suddenly had to come up with all these other masks yeah. and things and bobs you know for like a hundred beast people <laughs> yeah i think frankenheimer said in one scene or at least one of the actors says about frankenheimer that he said he wanted the extras on set and they had 10 of them and yeah. it was like what am i supposed to do with this i need a hundred people 
So that shows you kind of like how much this film ballooned once Richard Stanley was off the production as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we really need to talk about how Richard Stanley was booted from this film yeah. quite unceremoniously. Yeah. And it does sound like a series of unfortunate events. It's a combination of unfortunate events versus he kind of did it to himself. <laughs> kind of thing for sure <laughs> yeah i mean climbing a tree and staying up there rather than speaking to cast or crew or studio yeah, like not showing up for meetings is uh that's yeah. the death knell in hollywood yeah it's, it's just a bit of a, a weird one because he goes a bit full-blown kook mm. uh, yeah he just really struggled with going from very very small scale indie filmmaking where he was completely in control of it to something like this where you got to answer to way more people and it's a, you're yeah. handling more people. I mean, it sounds like Val Kilmer was really hard on him and yeah. uh, Marlon Brando had his... Well, Marlon Brando never actually got to the... To the set. <laughs> to the uh, shoot no. while Richard Stanley was there. But he's, even in the pre-production, he still had quite a few weird things going on there. Yeah. It's one of those where in the documentary, all of the extras and all of the bit part actors in the production are quite protective of Richard Stanley and have yeah. quite... A, few great things to say about him and about his vision and about his passion etc etc yeah but once it comes to the hollywood actors and the hollywood personnel and the people that matter in terms of the money yeah the, the, the hollywood machine yeah exactly those people that expect a certain way for a production to run and run smoothly it's with them that he had the most trouble yeah and especially with people with egos and ideas of their own I always look at that Marlon Brando discussion with Richard Donner on the making of Superman. Marlon Brando's a guy that has a lot of terrible ideas. And Marlon Brando's a guy that you have to say no to and find a way to say no to. Yeah. Richard Donner did. Richard Donner on Superman. I mean, for example, Marlon Brando wanted Kal-El to have a donut-shaped head. <laughs> Is the uh, famous quote, and Rich Donner was like, "Fucking no way, <laughs> you fucking donut." Yeah, you've got to find a way to manage these people. Directing yeah. people is also managing them, and one way for people to lose confidence in you and lose faith in you in terms of your management of people is to climb a fucking tree. <laughs> yeah, and refuse to acknowledge that they're there. <laughs> yeah, like I say, it's just one kook too many, and when you're you you've got a kooky director directing kooky, you actors, might say. There's too many kooks. Oh, spoiled too the many kooks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, Jesus, if they had uh, Tom Cruise as the Prendick character, that would have been a hat trick, wouldn't it? Is... Oh, but I mean, fucking perfect. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it just sounds like, for me, it's like, despite his passion for the material and his vision for it, which seemed very compelling, and it seemed like it would be a much weirder, more um, intimate film. Yeah. And smaller, smaller budget. Yeah. A bit more controlled, in a way. He just could not get it together not. on that professional level. So, in a way, despite all these other things going on, you have to just say, you know, he kind of, yeah, he just kind of did it to himself. He just didn't help. Kind of blew it. The situation, yeah. He just squandered his opportunity and... And yeah, just think you just weirded people out. <laughs> the, yeah. He weirded the people out who he shouldn't have been weirding out. Bob Shea says a great anecdote about Richard Stanley, and that was that when he walked out of the room, he was expecting him to be a kook, but he nearly got away with the whole conversation without doing anything kooky or saying anything kooky. Mm. And then at the very end of the pitch meeting, he asked for a coffee with four sugars in it. Yeah. And 
Shay was like, "No, nobody gets a coffee with four sugars in that's just, that, 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 we've got a, we've got a character on our hands here." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it kind of uh, the whole thing just falls apart, and you've got other things as well. Like you've got there were storms which washed some of the set away. And I was going to say there were forces of nature, and I didn't mean the the hurricane. I mean Val Kilmer, the the witch doctor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of witch doctoring. It's like we would say, like Sue was like, yeah, the witch doctor ended with like a, some sort of flesh eating disease and all that kind of stuff, and the heavens opened. And yeah, it did seem like one of those films that was plagued with plagues. I was spiritually off off balance. <laughs> <laughs> Richard Stanley was then fired off the back of that, especially when Val yeah. Kilmer started talking about leaving the production. So that was the end of his time on that film. He was supposed to be escorted to the airport by two. Um, assistance on the production and they dropped him off at the airport but he didn't get on the plane and then he disappeared on the island for a while yeah he does he does appear later yes <laughs> he later later reappears as a uh, as, as an extra <laughs> yeah it's not the end for richard stanley no He's, he is sir appearing in this film if you <laughs> if you can spot him <laughs> Yeah, so John Frankenheim is brought on board to kind of steady yeah. the ship on the promise that he'd get a free picture deal off the back of this. And man, that documentary had some pretty fucking terrible things to say about John Frankenheimer that I didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know he has a reputation as being a guy that saves films. He didn't save yeah. this one, obviously. No. It wasn't one of his first films, that Targets. Yeah. That yeah. was something that was salvaged from like a, another half completed film or. He recut one film and filmed some more bits. Yeah. He was brought on board to steady the ship, but he was, in his particular way, became a bit of a tyrant. Yeah. I think he became a problem for the production as well, by the sounds of things. Uh, it sounds like Bob Shea got fed up of dealing with John Frankenheimer's bullshit. It just seemed like, other than Mike DeLuca, this was not a film that New Line particularly wanted to make. No. Which adds to the the issues is the fact that they're probably butting your heads because this film just feels like such a liability uh, you know it's already gone wrong and it just keeps going wrong feels like a film that's a bit of a thorn in the side of bob shea and and like the rest of the new line team <laughs> so whenever you get a film that the studio is not 100 behind mm. that's never a good omen and, and the films are you films that are like that are usually nine times out of ten doomed yeah in some way <laughs> we've gone through quite a significant amount of the making of and there's more that we could go into yeah but i would say uh, the documentaries like i've mentioned before is somewhere to start with that there are great stories about like the smallest man in the world also being the horniest man in the world for example it um, always seems to be the way <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know I'm only six inches tall, so yeah. It was like if you ever see like <laughs> stories of like her Villachay and and uh, yeah, Vern Troyer and people like that, they always seem to be like the horniest people on the set. <laughs> it's because they can be stuffed up inside someone. Oh, <laughs> they, they themselves are a marital aid. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> there are stories of like the whole um, set devolving into like mass orgies and drugs and alcohol and everything like that it sounds great it seems yeah. like everybody who worked on the film despite how yeah. terrible it was had quite a lot of fun just yeah. going wild for yeah. six months one of the actresses mm -hmm. says that she was like i was hired for a month and i was there for six <laughs> so yeah. but all in all i would say definitely just watch that documentary because um, yeah. i really think we should get into oh, yeah. talking about the film <laughs> and, and what we thought about it so andy what did you think of the island of Dr. Moreau? Oh, um, 
Well. <laughs> have I got, I'm just trying to think, have I got a distinctive statement on this? I think it's just one of those... I mean, it's one of those things, it's never a good sign when you have a film like this, which is dealing with quite complex subject matter. You've got a lot of makeup effects and it's in a remote location. It's never a good thing when you've got a, a situation where the director's fired and then you get a new director and the film's only in turnaround for about a week, two weeks. Yeah. It's never a good thing. No. And I think, to be honest... It's a miracle that the film is as good as it is, considering all the yes, issues. Yeah, it is, yeah. Like the fact that they even had a film. <laughs> I gave it one out of five and I'm like, yeah, it is a miracle it's as good as it is. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the fact that there's even a film there that you can actually yeah. see from start to finish. I mean, I could have given it a half star yeah. rather than one out of five. Uh, so, it, you know, it could have been worse Yeah, by a half star. <laughs> there are elements to it that are quite well done like you know all the makeup effects are really cool mm -hmm. and the cgi is fucking excellent <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think some of the uh portrayals from like the beast people are, are pretty good i mean the, the beast people in the film are easily the strongest part of the film yes it's almost like that warcraft thing again at play yeah where anything to do with the humans is i wouldn't say it's boring it's it can no. be but <laughs> It's yeah. uh, this film isn't boring. No, I think there's a legitimately good role in this film, and that is the the arc of hyena swine. Yeah, that is yeah. what the whole film should have been hung on. Yeah, that's the only thing in this film that works on a legitimate level for me. It's interesting as well, and I think that the Richard Stanley version probably did focus on this a lot more. That that the story should have been more focused around the Beast People, and it seemed that way when you got certain cast members talking about their parts, which were downsized later on. Yeah, massively. It so. was going to be more about the internal politics of the Beast People and how mm. they are and how they interact with each other and the laws and all that kind of stuff. It's like by having almost like more of them in the John Frankenheimer version, he somehow ended up with less. Yeah. And I think that the one word to describe this film is unfocused. It's mm -hmm. so unfocused in what it's trying to achieve. And when you learn about its history and the fact that you had a director who just jumped on and didn't yeah. really have any interest in the film itself, it was just another job. Yeah. That's where the unfocusedness comes from. Because when you try and like, you know, you're hurriedly rewriting someone else's script, that's just going to happen. You're yeah. going to lose focus no matter what. It's hard to write your way out from the inside. And then also, again, because you've got certain cast changes as well, like Rob Morrow walked off yeah. the film. He sort of demanded to be taken off the film. He broke into tears speaking to Bob Shea, I believe. Yeah. I can understand why. And the fact that he is replaced by David Thewlis. And it's an interesting time for David Thewlis in the mid-90s because he gets cast for quite a few roles where he just is not suited for at no. all. Like, the, the issue that the film he did prior to this was Dragonheart, where he plays the villain. I just remember him always being really shit in that film because <laughs> it just didn't suit the part. So it was like one of those things where he get, kept getting cast in things that he wasn't suitable for. And this is yet another one of those films uh, yeah. David Thewlis is a really interesting actor. He's one of those people who has done some of the most amazing films and then some of the absolute worst films, Yeah, of which we've already covered one in this series, which was Basic Instinct 2. Yes, yeah. That year, that was it, 2006, where the two films that he made that year were Basic Instinct 2 and the, the, the remake of The Omen. <laughs> wow, what a year. Wow. What a year for him. 
yeah um so yeah and but then you can do stuff like um is it life is sweet naked and, yeah naked yeah and even his like lupin in prison of azkaban as well like he's oh perfect fantastic yeah for that if you look at his filmography it's so bizarre yeah it's uh, he's like he'll do literally anything <laughs> i like him for that though it's because yeah, like all bets yeah. are off in a way yeah and yet he could have become a malcolm mcdowell in the way that that you know he chooses his work he kind of just picks everything yeah. that comes along yeah and now all he gets is schlock yeah but what i like about david thewlis i mean i was just looking at his imdb list and i always forget that naked came out before Dragonheart. Yeah. Like, Naked, a film in which he feels so much older than he is, and then Dragonheart, Mm -hmm. where he's supposed to be playing like this... uh, He's not really a boy king, but he acts like it. Yeah. How is that the same person? (laughs) You know? Mm, Yeah. But yeah, so... And then he has the island of Dr. Moreau after Dragonheart. Yeah. It's weird that he doesn't even really get a mention at all in any way, shape, or form in the documentary. He barely gets seen. (laughs) Maybe he's like, I don't want to be mentioned. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I won't stop you from making the documentary, but if you mention me, I will sue you. Um, (laughs) Yeah, basically. (laughs) (laughs) I will say as well about my opinion of The Island of Dr. Moreau. I think it's a bad film. Yeah. And if I was talking to somebody who likes bad films, and they would say, well, what kind of a bad film is it? Is it a so bad it's good film? Is it a so bad it's bad film? Is it a film that's bad because of the special effects or because it's too boring? Is it an entertaining bad film? My answer would be yes. It's all of this. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, it, 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 it's a mixed bag of a bad film. <laughs> yeah, it's fucking crazy. And yeah. just when you think it's like got to the point where you're like, oh, it's all starting to drag along now. Here's where we have to knuckle in. Something fucking wild happens. Yeah. And you're off on another another mad tangent. Mm-hmm. I think as well, anybody that watched this film would know that they were in for a terrible ride just from the title sequence alone, yeah. which looks like it was made up of about like six different title sequences. <laughs> and they just couldn't decide on the one that they wanted. So they went, we'll do a bit of everything then. <laughs> just put a frame of every... <laughs> Every title sequence we've done next to each other. Yeah. And we'll just intercut it. Because I felt like I was going to have a seizure watching that. It worked quite well with the music, I would say. I think I actually did actually quite like the music in this film. Considering all the issues of the film, it was kind of very much divorced from that all that turmoil. Yeah. It was literally the only consistent thing of the film. <laughs> apart yeah. from the, uh, the makeup. I would say that the music sounded cheap. Because it was made for very cheap. Yeah. The music comes at a point in the production where pretty much everybody's already already given up on it and already spent the money. Yeah. So the music sounds cheap. There's no massive orchestra behind this. A lot of it is, you know, MIDI and synth sounds by the sound of things. Mm -hmm. But as you say, it is quite consistent throughout. Yeah. It's a production of it that sounds cheap to me. Yeah. And they've given him like 20 quid to finish the score. (laughs) (laughs) And 20 minutes. Hey, you got a week. We're going to give you a pound a day. But just in the start as well, like I remember we even talked about this when we first saw the film. And considering it's based in a book that's written kind of in first person as like a diary kind of thing, where it's like that kind of thing. Um, Mm. There's narration in this film, but it only appears at three points, like at the beginning, right in the middle, and then right at the end. Yes. (laughs) And it's like after that first bit of narration, it just crops up out of nowhere whenever it does appear. And it's like, what? There's narration in this film? Oh, shit. Who's who's talking here? Data <laughs> yeah. Thewlis isn't moving his lips. How's he doing this? 
<laughs> it's weird the narration as well to have a film that's um, framed against the narration of somebody filling in a diary, and at no point do we see him write anything down. Yeah, that's like one on one, isn't it? That there's something to do with the framing that's important to the um, yeah to the story being told. I would say also, as we were saying with that character, because it starts with a story already in motion. And there's no, like, it's obviously missing an opening set piece. And I wish we would have got to know, even with a few lines, the characters who he was sharing the plane with before he had to kill one of them or before they started to kill each other. That would have meant more if we knew who these people were. Yeah. I don't know throughout this entire film who David Thewlis is. No. I don't know what he's about. I don't know what he's doing. I have no idea about his background or what motivates him. At one point, he seems to be religiously motivated, but that seems to be for about five minutes of the film. Yeah, and he's not painted as a particularly likable character. He's one of these people where you can tell where it's it's been hurriedly rewritten because in some scenes, he's absolutely appalled at the Beast people, and then in the next scene, he could be completely sympathetic mm. to who they are and, and all the characters and stuff. There's a moment where he's talking to Marlon Brando's Dr. Moreau about the creatures that are here, and he's like, look at these people, like, and how repulsive they are. And he's like, look at them, and look at him. And he, like, points at the smallest guy in the room who yeah. really doesn't look that much different other than he's been given, like, some skin thing yeah. that he looks like he's been burnt slightly or something. Yeah. I was like, if you're going to point at someone in the room to say, look at him, he's the most grotesque thing in this room full of beast people, it's a bit tight to pick the guy... <laughs> who's got like the least makeup applied and is smiling at all times <laughs> he's smiling at all times it's because he's thinking about that pussy yeah <laughs> he's, he's always thinking about that pussy he's like seriously that he can stick his bum dick into <laughs> just just back into this love oh. i'm just going <laughs> i remember i've still got a photo this is a story from the first time i watched this film it's when the beast people are getting inoculated by Val Kilmer outside uh, and they've got that truck uh, and the little man is on the truck and he's bending over. So his weird tail thing is in full view in full daylight. And I took a photo of the screen and then what I did, I kept zooming in on it. Oh my word. I've got this zoom in photo of his like tail <laughs> in all its glory and it's... I've still got that to this day on my phone and uh, I cherish it. <laughs> but that scene is kind of really uncomfortable in a way. And it should have been uncomfortable in a good way if the character had been consistent. But it just comes off as, oh, so racist. <laughs> yes, like absolutely. Kind of and they really had no place making him look like the physical embodiment of the picture that I've just sent to you via your phone. <laughs> Dick Butt is the oh, name wow. of that character. Mr. Poopy Butthole. <laughs> it feels so cruel. Yeah, but enough of him. Let's talk about Marlon Brando. Yeah, that's we... it. You know what? We don't need to talk about any other characters. We no. might talk about Val Kilmer for a little bit. But yeah. But let's talk about, about Marlon, Marlon Brando, Brando. <laughs> wearing a fucking ice bucket on his head. Oh, Jesus. I don't know what it is about Marlon Brando in this film. He's like wearing this white face and white muumu the whole film. Yeah. And I somehow still think it's racist. <laughs> like, like I don't know how. I don't know who it's racist to, but there's something about me that goes, someone should be offended by that. Yeah. There is no way that he could do this and nobody be offended by it. Somebody somewhere has to be offended <laughs> by this because it looks fucking outrageous. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, the ice bucket on his head is truly a magnificent touch. I think it's it's the penultimate scene of his uh, appearance in the film, isn't it? Yeah. And it's like the crowning achievement. Everything's led up to this point. All the other stuff that he's been doing and wearing and in the film has led up to this moment. And it's like the cherry on the cake of that presence in the film. He is a messianic figure. Yes. And an ice bucket on his head is essentially his crown of thorns. <laughs> yeah. It's like when people paint the pictures of Dr. Moreau, yeah. they'll paint him with an ice bucket on his head with his fucking folded flappy ears. <laughs> like, I really like how he's had to fold his ears over just so the ice bucket would fit on his head. Well, he's making sure that audiences don't forget his appearance in this film. It will be etched in their minds forever. Whether they want it to or not. <laughs> I think my favourite scene, though, in the in the entire film is when, um, I don't know how to pronounce the name, Feruza Bulk? Yes, yeah. The leopard woman, I forgot the name of her character, but she is essentially Dr. Moreau's daughter. Yeah. And she is now changing into a leopard, although she never quite gets there during the film. Yeah. And she says to Dr. Moreau, I want to be like you. (laughs) She shouts at a 350-pound man (laughs) with Play-Doh for skin. He is folded so his head fits inside of an ice bucket that he wears like a fucking hat. In any other film, that would be parody. That would be like Paul Verhoeven style. And we would be creased up. (laughs) But it's like, I want to be like you. It's like, it's a good job I made this mini female only ice bucket. And it looks like Homer Simpson in that episode of The Simpsons where he... um, he puts on like a hundred pounds and wears a moomoo. He, he, he eats all the donuts. <laughs> is that what? Is that, that's the episode where he goes to hell and they force feed him donuts and he just doesn't stop. And they think it's a punishment. That's another one, but he does look like yeah. that as well. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, so you like donuts, do you? How about all the donuts in the world? <laughs> I mean, I'm surprised he didn't suggest that he had a donut head in this film. Honestly, he, I imagine he should probably suggested it. And then all eyes turned to Stan Winston stood in the corner. He's like. What? (laughs) I've got some white face paint. Is that a compromise? (laughs) Yeah. We can make you look like you've been dusted with sugary powder. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You'll have that crispy cream glaze. We've got a few beast people in the back working on it right now. (laughs) My ambition, Mr. Douglas, is to be part donut. That is the thing in life, to be a donut. I'm so glad that this film exists in the form that it does as well. I mean, it's fucking terrible for, like, anybody who has any reverence for the source material whatsoever. This film is like a one-time-and-done situation. I don't think we'll get anything like this ever happening again in bigger-budget cinema. I mean, you know, there's plenty of bad films with eccentric performances, but they tend to be on the really low-budget end Mm -hmm. of the scale. But to have a, you know, a fairly well-budgeted film with full Hollywood backing... Yeah, and to be the room-style bad. Yeah, and done unironically as well. Yeah. I don't think it's anything we'll ever see again. This is like a one-time-only situation where... And it's not even the fact that you've got just one actor doing it. You've got two actors doing it. Yes. Um, Yeah, it's just, the whole thing is just quite marvellous in that regard. You can almost see the point in the film as well where Val Kilmer truly stops giving a shit. 20 seconds into his performance. <laughs> <laughs> like, he never really cared about this film. No. And straight from the off, it sounds like he was always begrudgingly in this film. Yeah. Which, to be honest, it's like, that was the worst decision they made with this film, was by getting Val Kilmer, it kind of inflates the budget to a point where... 
they didn't need it to be there. Suddenly, a lot more people get involved in the making of it and are more like directly involved in the making. More compromises have to be made when more money's involved. And you're also, and it's all in favour of an actor who doesn't want to be there. Move on, move on to somebody else. Mm. It's only going to hurt the film. And it's clear straight from the off that Val Kilmer doesn't really care about the film. But there comes a point where he truly just goes, takes it to another level. Yeah. And he's just going wild. And in the end, it's just like, how can I entertain myself while I'm working on this piece of shit? Yeah. The answer to that question is many Marlon Brando impressions. Yeah. <laughs> Which he seems to be very good at. I think the the other thing that the film feels very disjointed especially in the middle, because it's, it seems very obvious that they only managed to get Val Kilmer and Marlon Brando to be on screen together properly for one scene, which is the dinner yeah. scene, and everything else is very fragmented, and Montgomery just slips in and out of the film, and it feels like there was a motivation for, for Montgomery's character at one point, but it's just very fleetingly there. By the time he's out of the film, you kind of go, what the, What was the point of that character? Was he there to disrupt what Moreau was doing? Was there something that Moreau had done that had pissed him off and he was kind of like undoing all his work? There seemed to be a thread there that wasn't really explored. No, no, it feels like completely unexplored, as most things are in this film. I mean, we yeah, have the thread yeah. as well with David Thewlis's character about him becoming an animal on this life raft in the opening minutes of the film and having to yeah. kill someone in order to ensure his survival. And I wrote down, oh yeah, this is supposed to be about David Thewlis's guilt about becoming that savage for a moment. Yeah. And it's never about that. It's never, ever about that. That never comes back around again. No. It's just, oh no, it's just an excuse to have him on this island. That feels like the easiest thing to tie into the film. <laughs> like, yeah. clearly did at one point. And is it me? Or is this like... I expected at the end of the film as David Thewlis is just like rowing himself into the sunset and he can hear his narration as he's writing in his diary. This film seemed like it took place over a very short period of time and I expected the narration to go, and that was the wildest Tuesday I had ever had. (laughs) (laughs) Wild weekend. (laughs) That was my weekend at Bernie's. Bernie Moreau. (laughs) Bernie Moreau. (laughs) The Island of Dr. Bernie Moreau. Weekend at Bernie's 3. That should have been the third (laughs) act where they kill Moreau and then they just pretend that he's still alive. (laughs) That was my favourite bit of the the third act, is the fact that when they kill Moreau, the uh, hyena swine person tears off one of his hands and then wears it as a necklace for the rest of the film. Yeah. So we did watch the same version. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's the director's cut. Uh, and I, yeah, I just love the fact that he wears his hand for the rest of the film. <laughs> so to be honest, that the hand bit isn't in the theatrical cut. Right, yeah. So yeah. for anybody else watching it, it just cuts to him wearing a random hand. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> so like you do. He kills, he kills Moreau, and then goes on a bit of a rampage with all the Beast people and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And then he's just wearing a hand. So, uh, yeah, that, it's, it was essential that we saw the director's cut. Those four minutes did a lot of work, making this film... Uh... Slightly more coherent. <laughs> yeah, even though we've we've mentioned the smallest man in the world, but and uh, the fact that Marlon Brando took a shine to the actor, uh, he was only meant to be a sort of like a background performer. Yes, yeah, he was. Marlon Brando took a shine to him so much that he basically made him his sidekick to the point where the uh, the character that should have taken that role was was completely downsized was the myling role 
Yes, yeah. In exchange, we have the original little man with a little piano on top of a, of a big piano scene. <laughs> which <laughs> It's got very Austin Powers vibes. Yeah, and it's interesting that they're both New Line films as well, so it's almost like a little in-joke to the failure of this film. The whole Mini-Me <laughs> thing is like just a complete parody of... Yeah. Yeah, that character, it's like it's like basically like a tribute to that pairing. I mean, this film's got a few people in it as well. Like I say, Feruza Balk is in um, The Craft and The Waterboy. We've got uh, Val Kilmer, David Thewlis, Marlon Brando. We've also got Ron Perlman as Sayer of the Law. Yeah. Uh, fortunately for Ron Perlman, I'm glad he didn't waste all of his time on this film. He's only in about three scenes. Yeah. And also Mark Dacoscas as Lo Mai, the Leopard Man. Yeah. He's in this as well. He was a... Uh, John Wick villain in one of the films. Yeah, it was, and is it Tamara Morrison? Oh yes, and obviously uh, Django Fett as well. Yeah, deemed to be clone trooper forever. Yeah, <laughs> like... I liked his stuff. I liked the Beast People stuff, and I also yeah. felt like um, it's that Planet of the Apes issue again, where Stan Winston has done, and Stan Winston Studios, I should say, has done some really interesting work for a film that is doesn't deserve it. And yeah. also for a film that serves to undercut all of their interesting work at every opportunity. I don't understand why there is any CGI in this film for any of those characters, for things that you could have easily um, achieved with uh, a little bit of wire work or that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Like, for example, when the le- when they see the leopard on the stream and then it runs away, but it seems to, like, deform <laughs> into itself. <laughs> it's like its whole body <laughs> folds at the middle. <laughs> As it runs away, it doesn't look right. Yeah. It's the kind of thing that you'd see on Corridor Digital soon. I might suggest it to them. And it sounds like they had a load of issues with Frankenheimer anyway. Because the film had all been prepped for Richard Stanley, everything they'd built and designed was for a particular purpose. So, for example, that leopard, that leopard creature was designed to be only seen at night. Yeah, and you can see, yeah. And yes, and that obviously that completely goes out the window because literally every scene he's in is in daylight, in broad daylight. And that was just one of many, many issues that they yeah. had. When it comes to John Frankenheimer, as a filmmaker, it sounds like he was an absolute tyrant on this film. And it sounds, they referred to him as one of the last great screamers uh, as, as a filmmaker. His conduct sounds like it's just completely unacceptable. It wouldn't fly today. Uh, it certainly wouldn't. It'd be an article in Variety or something like that, wouldn't it? Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah. Even when you look at his filmography, yes, he has a reputation for being able to save films. But the only other film that he's done that is similar in any way, shape or form to The Island of Dr. Moreau as a sci-fi horror film is Prophecy. And that film's dog shit. I watched it not too long ago and it's really boring for about 45 minutes. And then a mutant bear... throws a child in a sleeping bag against a rock (laughs) and it becomes the funniest film i've ever seen so i don't know why they looked at him and thought all right john frankenheim is the guy to get for this film because there's nothing in his filmography that lends to this Uh, and and clearly by the footage they got they make so much of it in daylight for example yeah with these suits in full daylight it's amazing that they work as much as they do yeah but they clearly weren't made to be in those conditions no yeah it just seems like such a weird choice of director even for a salvage job yeah I like mean, it, give me ronan give me ronan i'll watch ronan over and over again uh, and that's the weirdest thing the fact that he makes ronan the year after yeah exactly i mean even give me reindeer games yeah 
<laughs> That's shit. I fucking love it, though. I mean, at the end of the day, yeah, it's a salvage job. It's not his film, really. It's like a proper director for hire job. It just, I think it further highlights what a weird misadventure this film was. Yeah. Just a, a weird blip in, in like New Line's collection of films. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. just, you can see how it was just seen as being a complete liability and, and just not in line with what they wanted to do, or at least what the majority of the company wanted yeah. to do. It doesn't mention what happened to, to Mike DeLuca, but it sounds like he's no longer with the company anyway. <laughs> So, no, no, it doesn't sound like it, does it? That last like forty minutes, like it basically the the films it kind of starts off a bit dull, mm-hmm. and then as soon as Doctor Moreau appears, it just goes a bit crazy, and then when Doctor Moreau is killed, the whole film just like self destructs. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like all of the stuff with the Beast people as well because they haven't put the time in. They seem yeah. to be acting and making decisions that don't make any sense because. We don't know what their motivations are to a point. Uh, they've only been given like the most basic of motivation. And that is that they don't yeah. like pain. And that Dr. Murrow was kind of like giving them a law based on pain. And once you take that pain yeah. away, they find that they're in a lawless environment. I mean, even by saying that out loud, I'm giving it more credit than it deserves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There are factions within this group of beasts as well that isn't really explored much, but the film expects us to be on board with all of that. Yeah. It feels like so much of the film is missing, and yet I'm still amazed that it's over 100 minutes long in the version that we see. Like, it's 101 minutes. Yeah. I'm surprised it's even that long. Yeah. Yeah, and obviously all the stuff with Val Kilmer going crazy, but we don't really know why. No, he seems like he's going crazy before Moreau dies as well. Like, he just suddenly decides, I'm doing drugs now. Deal with it. Yeah, it's one of those, again, it's one of those situations where who thought of that as a scene yeah. and, and shot it and okayed it and it's in the film. Yeah, when he's got like the, the radio part stuck to his top of his head. And the fact that he's doing a very good Marlon Brando impression, but he's doing an impression of Marlon Brando from another film. <laughs> like he's doing like on the waterfront Marlon yeah. Brando. Whereas that is not the accent that Marlon Brando is using in this no. film. He's doing like an English accent. Yeah, he's an I uh, could have been a contender kind of like <laughs> accent. Whereas in this film, it's like, Mr. Douglas, I want to say this kind of yeah, thing. Exactly. I'm trying to channel Anthony Hopkins. hundred percent. Via Ken oh, Dodd. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I wish I wish Dr. Moreau had a feather duster throughout the entire film. Oh, just a yeah. giant feather duster. Well, I feel like he's got Ken Dodd teeth. For a start, like yeah, he does just, for sure. He's trying to do like Anthony Hopkins, Hannibal Lecter voice. I feel like that's the better version of the film as well. Like if you were going to make a legitimate film version of this at that time, I I wrote down Anthony Hopkins in my notes. <laughs> it's Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, that's Doctor Moreau for sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I think my last thing that I want to mention about it as well, and we've touched upon this as well with regards to the narration, with regards to how Marlon Brando plays the role of uh, Doctor Moreau. And just in general, how the film feels, I feel like it's very anachronistic to make it a contemporary-based film. Yeah. I, I mean, I know that that was Richard Stanley's intention, but considering it feels also very old-fashioned and not yeah. in a way in which... For example, like one way where it can feel old-fashioned and that's okay is the way in which um, Feruza Balk's character mentions how, oh... England is an island as well. I would very much like to visit there one day. You know, she hasn't left this place, so 
to her. She's been sheltered her yeah. whole life, even though she's talking like globe trotting isn't a thing now. Yeah. I understand why on that character level, but everything else, just in terms of the setup and the way that people talk and the way that David Thewlis narrates his, his diary entries, they all feel like part of a much older story, which makes sense because it is. It would have made far more sense to just make this a Victorian story. It's kept the Victorian setting. Even the like the central conceit that this is like a doctor, like a professor or something that's been banished and he's got his own yeah, private ostracized. island and stuff like that. Yeah, that's not the kind of thing that you would that lends itself to a modern day setting, really. No, not at all. You'd have somebody keeping tabs on it. You you, you can't get away with that kind of level of seclusion based on your mm. past. It, it, yeah, it, it would just lend itself just to be a period piece sort of turn of the century and it's weird as well because yeah you'd be able to get it would be so much richer for it as well because you could get the you know the decor and the costumes and yeah it would just, yeah of course it's just one of those things where the story just feels very time and place mm-hmm. and again because it's it's like inspired by the whole darwinism thing that was coming out around that time there's very few adaptations that work when you actually take them out of the time that they're set in most of the time they generally tend to work best when they are done in the in the style in which they are originally written yes because there's lots of like context about when they were written that informs why they're written that way and why the characters yeah act a certain way and do a certain thing like it doesn't make sense for some of the characters to act the way that they do in the in this version of the film because of the setting yeah it's already a pretty outrageous world <laughs> i feel like as well it's missed a trick at this point in which like the island of dr moreau the hg wells story was drawing from victorian exploration of like you know vivis- dissection and vivisection all that kind of thing of like mm-hmm. looking at the human body looking at anatomy darwinism looking at uh, the um, evolution they were going around the world taking exotic animals and then cutting them open all that kind of stuff all that was happening, this book feels like it's very much in reference to all of that and, yeah. all, and practices that were falling out of favour with the British public as well at the time. At the point in which this film was made in the 90s, I mean, you've got like Dolly the Sheep and stuff like that happening. You know, yeah. but they're talking about cloning for the first time and all this kind of stuff. Feels like it's the, it's the right time to make a film like this. And they've kind of, if they were going to update it or modernise it, it needed to be more based around what's happening contemporary at that time yeah yeah. instead it feels still very victorian with very victorian uh with a very victorian vision of the world as well a view of the world so it 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 feels like i say it's anachronistic that way i wish that they would have just kept it with the period because then we wouldn't have that kind of dissonance between subject matter and source material as well like what it's about and yeah i think that's that goes down to richard stanley in a way because Obviously, yeah, it was it was his original intention to keep it contemporary, but you could never describe him as being a contemporary figure. He's one of those no. out of time figures, and he even says so in the documentary when you know he he quits the film and afterwards he becomes like a recluse and he you know living in Montsegur and like being sort of a bit of a almost like a hermit kind of character mm-hmm. detached from the world. And it's like his vision of what a modern world is is probably not, in, you know, it's still, that's why it ends up being Victorian in all but presentation. Yes, yeah. 
So I think it all stems back to that, really. And obviously, it's one of those things where they just wouldn't have the time to change it. I'm sure if you'd, if the film had been shut down for an extended period of time and then they completely retooled it, you could have ironed out a lot of these issues. Mm-hmm. But because of where they were shooting and everything and the situation with all the actors, there was no way they could do that. Mm. So a lot of the issues are, are inbuilt by the time they even start shooting the new version of the film there's nothing you can do to change a lot of it yeah yeah at that point the film was always going to turn out like this and i think even at the end of the documentary bob shea was like we made the film we lost less money by finishing the film and releasing it than we would have done if we just shut it down yeah yeah I so it's it's a small win in that regard that it got finished and that's it we'll close the book on it kind of thing yeah yeah exactly (laughs) that's that's basically what this film's been like because it I didn't remember this film coming out at the time. I don't think a lot of people did. And considering the fact that this film was Val Kilmer's next film after Batman Forever. Yeah. We've talked about it on this podcast before, like how big of a deal that film was. I think people forget how yeah, big it was huge. Batman it was Forever huge. was. It was massive. Especially if you're like an eight, nine-year-old kid. Like, <laughs> And the fact that I didn't know that there was a, film of dr moreau starring val kilmer at the time i I knew there was a film of the saint uh, and stuff like that because like there's that came out shortly after yeah it did yeah in in, was it 96 or 97 did it even come out in the uk (laughs) yes november release november the 15th but that's like a month after it's been out in america so uh, they already know it's a shit film and that it's a bomb and we know know it by that point as well i imagine it would have been one of those films that played for about two weeks and disappeared if that I'm I'm wondering whether like they felt obligated to release it in the UK like that yeah. because it's HG Wells. Of course, yeah. And it's the hundredth yeah, anniversary yeah. of the source material as well. But <laughs> we haven't even talked about that fucking poster. Jesus Christ. Where it's like <laughs> doesn't even look like Marlon Brando. Um <laughs> it, it, Yeah, it's a fucking weird poster. They should have gone for a photo of him with the ice bucket. And oh, little, they should have with the little guy with his butt dick. It would have made double. Yeah, it would have. It would have just sparked people's curiosity. People would have just yeah. come to be, you know, to just come and laugh, laugh along with the film. Yeah, and we haven't talked about how the legacy of this film is essentially having a South Park character based on him as well. In the first season of South Park, there's a doctor who's clearly based on Doctor Moreau. I forgot his I name. I imagine that Matt and Trey must have been like the only some of the only people that went out to see this film at the cinema it must have had a lasting impression yeah his name's dr alfonso mefesto wasn't south park 97 so the year after uh yeah so this is september the 10th 1997 yeah so like a year well less than a year afterwards so they probably would have watched this as they were probably writing the first series oh no so it's not it's not it's not dicks hanging out their asses he wants to make different animals with four asses <laughs> yeah so, so yeah, that kind of makes sense with what we get to see in, yeah. so that, in Doctor That's Moreau. the legacy. That's the that... legacy of this film. <laughs> oh, my God. You, have, you know what? I don't know where I was hiding that away in my mind. I mean, if you're going to have a legacy that's, like, instilled in... I mean, that's, that's the weird thing, in a way. Like, considering how forgotten this film is, its legacy is South Park and Austin Powers, which were two of the biggest mm. things to come out of the whole late 90s like period especially in like yeah. comedy and like US comedy um so yeah what a legacy to be honest <laughs> it is 
like I'm glad it has something because <laughs> it deserves it. Yeah. And it's one of those films as, as well that definitely deserves being watched because it's just so odd. Yeah. Okay, so before we move on to our final thoughts of The Island of Dr. Moreau, uh, we're going to go over the stats and facts now. So this is the critical reception followed by the box office figures for the film. Now, I'm going to begin by looking at how this film was received by uh, critics and the audience. So on Rotten Tomatoes, this film has a tomato meter reading of 22%, and that is based on 36 reviews. Those critics gave it a 4.3 out of 10 average rating. Now, the critics' consensus is that it's timid and unfocused in its storytelling. The Island of Dr. Moreau is more lackluster misfire than morbid curiosity. Now, at this point, we would normally go into the like Roger Ebert review for the film, and I would talk through a little excerpt. But instead, I'm actually going to play a clip from the Siskel and Ebert episode of their review show in which they talk about the island of dr moreau i will say one of them give it a thumbs up and one of them give it a thumbs down but i'll let that clip play now the island of dr moreau is a small somewhat familiar story but i must admit i was never bored by it once i had met all of its characters because the actors are so terrific sort of a mixed review but thumbs up for me on the island of dr moreau Thumbs down for me, but you know, watching the film, I thought, we are all so fascinated by Marlon Brando. No other actor could get away with this performance, right. appearing in pancake makeup right. in the Pope Mobile, and the then having all of those outfit little kind of affected speeches uh, throughout the film. You could even at one point see his hearing aid that he uses, I'm told, or it's to reported, get his lines. to get his lines. To get his lines, okay. Uh, well, were you Kilmer bored by a, this? Yes, I was. I was very right. bored because they didn't really develop the characters, and the whole last hour of the movie is nothing but rather murky and unfocused violence, uh, just the old the scientist, it's violent a formula that ends all movies like this, where everybody, there are lots of explosions and things go up in flames. He's get done a bad thing, good. Roger. He's done a bad thing. Yeah, He's but I mean, why not, why not resolve it in some kind of a dramatic way instead of doing it with just special effects and explosions? Well, I felt that the characters were written all the way through. Mm. I mean, the, the Val Kilmer character could have been enlarged, and probably, I, I have a feeling this movie was severely yeah, edited. It was, because that's I'm a, sure that's it was a, badly edited. The characters don't pay off, the relationships don't develop. The movie is well, a I real think, disappointment. I think the Brando character does pay off all the way through. The Fuelist character is mm -hmm. written all the way through. I think he's fascinating. The only one for me that was lacking was Kilmer's character. That kind of sums up as well, like this film. It's a thumb sideways. Film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a thumb fun. sideways. It is both simultaneously boring and very entertaining for yeah. all the right or wrong reasons, depending on <laughs> yeah. how you look at this. The audience score for this film on Rotten Tomatoes is 20%. I mean, we need to find the 20% of people that rated this film highly. Man, those people vote. <laughs> kind of explains Trump now, yeah. doesn't it? <laughs> so and the film got a 2.3 out of 5 average rating from um, the audience score. And on IMDb, the film has a 4.5 out of 10 average rating. So that is the critics and audience reception to the film. Now I'm going to hand it to you, Andy, and you're going to go through some box office figures. So how was the film received at the box office? Right, so The Island of Dr. Moreau was released on the 23rd of August 1996 in America, which is kind of the... Um, the arse end of the summer period. The dick uh, hanging out <laughs> of the arse end of the summer period. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the fuck you, it's late August <laughs> <laughs> period. 
but yeah, the the film was was made on a, a forty million dollar budget. Yeah, and because we are in the arse end of summer, it opened to number one, <laughs> which was shocking to me to find out. Yeah, with uh, nine point one million dollars. Yeah, its overall domestic gross was twenty seven point six million dollars. Its international was. million dollars for a worldwide gross of 49.6 million dollars and and just to demonstrate the um the arse-endedness of this uh week the island of drop from row was at number one number two that week was a film called tin cup oh that's the kevin costner film Golf film, if I remember rightly. Yeah. That was when he was going through his um, sports phase, when it's like, hey, we're going to do a sports film. Who should be in it? Kevin Costner. Okay. Kevin Costner, yeah. Number uh, three was a very Brady sequel. Oh, okay. A very Brady sequel. Sequel to The Brady Bunch. I didn't know they made so many films about Tom Brady. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Um, number four was A Time to Kill a Joel Schumacher film yeah but that that was actually in its fifth week just uh, demonstrating how arse-endedness this uh, week was yeah yeah that makes more sense number five was Jack the um, Robin Williams plays child film (laughs) Um, my large adult son the hairiest boy you've ever seen yeah you know what? I, I make I make it sound like my gran had like a thousand bad films on her shelf, but Jack was also one of the films that she taped for us <laughs> off the TV, yeah. and we used to. I think it's just because it has my brother's name. Yeah, and we watched. We used to watch that over and over again. It's a really bad film. <laughs> yeah, number six was Independence Day, but that was in its eighth week. Uh, number seven was a film called The Fan. Oh, that's the Tony Scott. Robert De Niro, Wesley Snipes film. I watched that recently. Right. It's pretty okay. It's pretty it's okay. Pretty okay. <laughs> it's pretty all right. What did you think of it? It was superbly average. <laughs> yeah. um, number eight was um, Emma, the uh, Gwyneth Paltrow version. Oh, of course, yeah. Number nine was a film called Solo. Fuck, that was released early, wasn't it? Not a Star Wars story. Um, <laughs> all right. No, this this one's about the hand job and. Number 10 was John Carpenter's Escape from L.A. Another one that's been on our list for what feels like decades. In its third week, which obviously tells a, a story of how uh, how much of a bomb that film was. <laughs> oh my God. So The Island of Dr. Moreau made more than Escape from L.A., which made 21 million overall at this point. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> I mean, something that you mentioned about this film, that the film made $27 million domestically. Okay, yeah, sure, that's not... It's not a great amount of money when you've got things like Independence Day making what it did, like 275 or whatever. And you've got like A Time to Kill making $80 million at this point. But $27 million is still three times what it opened with. Yeah. So enough happened with this film that people came back to see it. Yeah. Because <laughs> they, they always say if a film makes three times as much as it's opening weekend, then it's done good word of mouth business. Yeah. How is that the case? <laughs> At the end of the day, it's it's a film that's got Val Kilmer in it, Marlon Brando, and Val Kilmer given top billing in the film. So there must have been some sort of curiosity around yeah. that because Marlon Brando was renowned. He was kind of the Kubrick of acting in that sense, where it was like mm-hmm. he's in very sporadic roles, um, usually doing something a bit weird. 
at this point yeah. in his career. Yeah, I mean, he was also doing things where anytime he worked on a film, everybody hated him. Yeah. Like, I remember he worked on the um, Frank Oz film, The Score, I think it might the have been score, called. Yeah, that was his last film. And Frank Oz just hated every second of working with yeah. Marlon Brando. Yeah. So, yeah, whenever he picked a film, somebody suffered. Yeah. But then, and then you've got Val Kilmer, whose two previous films have been Batman Forever and Heat. I think good things are coming Val Kilmer's way after this film. <laughs> He's got good things in his future, oh, honestly. <laughs> things will come up oh. Millhouse for uh, for Val Kilmer. <laughs> we'll see him again, that young scamp. Yeah, we'll hear that distinctive voice. <laughs> yeah, as long as he's got oh, that silky God. smooth voice and perfect tongue. Oh, no. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> oh. hell. <laughs> okay, maybe that might be too far, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so it, it is quite strange, this one, because it actually made a considerable amount more than I thought it was going to make Yeah, when we had a look at the box office, because I went into this not knowing anything about the box office side of things. And $49 million seems almost respectable, considering how bad yeah. this film is and how yeah. toxic its reputation is. I think when Bob Shea it was like, yeah, we probably lost money, but not that much money. Yes, yeah, it's, it's more of a, yeah. yeah. We're working on something here at New Line. Yeah. We've got this other guy from New Zealand. He's, work, he's working on a little <laughs> something for us. <laughs> well, it's called The Frighteners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We might give him one more shot. <laughs> yeah. All right, so that didn't quite work out. So I guess it's now time for us to go over our final thoughts for this. And just to get, get it out there as well. As I mentioned earlier, I don't think the Richard Stanley version of the film would have been good, but it certainly would have been like a more complete vision, a more interesting creative vision. Now, yeah, I do feel like we've lost a creative vision, but at the same time, we've ended up with this, like you say, this double bill, this documentary and film combo that is incredibly entertaining and incredibly interesting to watch. Yeah. And is that better in itself? Because, mm. I, I mean, I love a bad film. And I love a bad film with a complicated history. And when we have a lot of media that goes into how complicated that history and how complex yeah. these situations were surrounding that, I get so much more from a film that way. And I often have to weigh up in my mind, like, oh, would it have been better to get a more complete vision that probably would have had some major flaws, but at least it's somebody's vision? Or is this more entertaining yeah yeah dr moreau is not a film i would recommend unless you are know what you're getting in for and you are like a fan of bad films because it is a wildly bad film yeah how about yourself where do you stand on this yeah i mean i was just thinking about it uh, in the way that you're talking about the double bill like the only thing i can compare it to not in quality wise but just in terms of how crazy things can be and a, a an eccentric director versus studios and odd things happening on his films the only thing i can compare it to is anything to do with terry gilliam and him trying to make one of his crazy films oh god yeah you've got obviously baron monkhausen but more famously and more appropriately you've got the whole don quixote thing which yes is, did that ever get the follow-up documentary i'm not sure whether it was ever finished or I don't know if Did the they... follow-up documentary was finished, but we still have that first one, Lost in La Mancha. Yeah, you got Lost in La Mancha. Then you've got the 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 film that he eventually made, which is The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, which has its own troubled history with its release and everything. And is essentially, in a way, a film about the making of the film. Yeah. It's, it's a lot more meta. Yeah, which had its own... You know, it's never been released in the UK. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, that's the only thing I can really compare it to, but not in terms of the quality, because obviously those films are still more cohesive and better made. And, you know, he got a slightly less crazy director, even though, he, you know, he uh, likes to live on the edge. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, that's the only thing I can compare it to, really, especially if you're watching, say, something like Lost in the Mancha paired with The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. That's a similar kind of deal, mm. but just craziness. And uh, yeah, almost like a once in a lifetime opportunity to see something like this done at this scale. Yes, exactly, yeah. Because at the end of the day, it's a $40 million film, which, if you adjust it for inflation, this is a $100 million film. So an Oppenheimer-budgeted film starring a man with an ice bucket on his head. (laughs) Just to put that into context for everyone. That is Honestly, (laughs) that image is the perfect way to end this which is why i want to see the oppenheimer poster with oppenheimer wearing an ice bucket on his head to protect himself from the uh, the trinity test <laughs> <laughs> i've made this official garb for everyone to wear it's very important yeah. that we all wear it at all times and that that's why i say that i have this... become ice bucket man destroyer of worlds <laughs> but that's why i say this film is a once in a lifetime opportunity as a viewing experience because something like this will probably never happen again that is said by someone who hasn't seen the flash yet but just as a filmmaking thing um if you're into that kind of stuff despite the very shoddy cgi which is minimal in the film yeah fortunately the, the big draw for this film is all the really cool stan winston stuff for sure which is great and there's a couple of like interesting performances sprinkled throughout those characters particularly as well yeah so i said i can recommend it for for that anyway and it's just yeah it's it's just a balmy film so it gets the green and Raphael big thumbs up then big thumbs up the uh <laughs> the, the dick butt the, the dick butt <laughs> yeah <laughs> you could wear him like a little thumb puppet oh because he's just so small that's <laughs> why moreau he has such appeal <laughs> He can get in places. He can get in crevices. I didn't know I had. That's why he's smiling all the time. <laughs> yeah. And whenever that character isn't in the shot, he's in the shot. Oh. You just can't see him, baby. So that's all we have to say. Thankfully, that's all we have to say on the yeah. island of Dr. Moreau. Um, Andy, what are we going to be doing on our next episode? Next week, we'll be um, pop- popping our dwarf of PPK into our shoulder holsters and reaching for the stars. Because we are doing Moonraker. Yes! The best Bond film. <laughs> We've kind of had enough of Daniel Craig. Yeah. We're, we're, we're moving into Roger Moore. We're moving into the good stuff. And it's most Roger Moore-ness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's Bond trying to get a bit of that Star Wars pie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But until then, I've been Gareth. And I would like to see a poopy butthole man. <laughs> Uh, that is what I'm trying to do, Mr. Douglas, is to create erotic animals that I can sick my thumbs into. <laughs> Welcome to Erotic Park. <laughs> ba, ba, ba. <laughs> and here we see the Tyrannosaurus sex. <laughs> oh, the music's like <laughs> porn version. Yeah. And the Velosa raped her. <laughs> Oh no! <laughs> it's the fastest raper in the park. I've seen these things clock up to 60 thrusts a second. <laughs> and here, look at my iguana thong. Oh fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs>
I really shouldn't have invited my grandchildren. <laughs> no, they're gonna make me sign that register for sure. I want to know where that walking stick's been because it certainly wasn't amber when it started. <laughs> it just gets more and more brown as they. Yeah, yeah. That's why he keeps looking at it. <laughs> Anyway, and, what, yeah. it's like, there's a, and there's that odd situation where Dennis gets uh, come on by a oh oh, but that, but that like umbrella faced one. Oh, what what are they called? It's gone out of my head. You gotta make sure it doesn't fling any of its fluid in your eyes. Oh. That shit'll stink. <laughs> I can feel them swimming. <laughs> Remember, hold on to your butts. <laughs> I guess until then, yeah. I've been Gareth. And I've been I've been Richard Stanley, <laughs> secretly. Thank you for listening. Now fuck off. <laughs>